I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Stephen Grossberg, is one of the principal founders of the fields of computational neuroscience, connectivist cognitive science, and artificial neural network research. Grossberg has been the endowed Wang Professor of Cognitive and Neural Systems since 1989 at Boston University, where he is also an Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Statistics, Psychological and Brain Sciences, and Biomedical Engineering. In 1991, Grossberg founded and chaired the Department of Cognitive and Neural Systems, which became the world's leading department for training graduate students and postdocs in the fields of Grossberg's expertise. Grossberg also founded the Center for Adaptive Systems in 1981 to manage the millions of dollars in grants to support the interdisciplinary research that he and his colleagues led with over 100 PhD students and postdocs. He remains its director today. Grossberg also founded and led several other Boston area multidisciplinary research centers over the years. In 1987, he founded the International Neural Network Society and its journal, Neural Networks, which became the official journal of the three major neural modeling societies in the world and was editor-in-chief until 2010. Grossberg has won numerous awards for his work, including the Norman Anderson Lifetime Achievement Award of the Society of Experimental Psychologists in 2015, and most recently the IEEE Lofty A. Zeta Pioneer Award in 2022 for seminal contributions to understanding brain cognition and behavior and their emulation by technology. As a college freshman at Dartmouth College in 1957, Grossberg founded the field of neural networks, including its basic equations, microcircuits, and architectures that are still in use today. A particularly important contribution is adaptive resonance theory, which is the most advanced cognitive and neural theory about how our brains pay attention, recognize, and predict objects and events in a changing world. Adaptive resonance theory has been used in many large-scale applications in engineering, technology, and AI. After 66 years of intensive research, published in nearly 600 journal articles and several patents, he recently published a comprehensive exposition of his life's work in a book entitled Conscious Mind, Resonant Brain, How Each Brain Makes a Mind, which won the 2022 Prose Book Award in Neuroscience from the Association of American Publishers. As suggested by the book's title, Grossberg has been particularly interested in explaining how the physical stuff of the brain produces conscious experiences of seeing, hearing, feeling, and knowing. So, Steve, I think that's what you prefer to be called. Welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Good to be here. So I just wanted to mention, I guess it shouldn't be so surprising that a career spanning 66 years and counting would yield a 55-page resume, which I saw online. That was really amazing. And uh, congratulations on your life's work, which as you've written, started as a freshman in college. I mean, not too many people can say that. And I also understand that uh, what you came up with then, you weren't able to publish for about 10 years. I guess you, being a freshman at a university is not this kind of uh, professional affiliation that leads to easily publishing articles. And also I mentioned what you had to publish was unusual and it wasn't really recognized as highly relevant until sometime later. Yeah, well, for quite a few years, uh, several people thought I was crazy. But as you mentioned, my life's work began in 1957 when I was 17 years old, and I was taking introductory psychology as a freshman at Dartmouth College. And it was then that I introduced the field of neural networks, which is now very hot in AI. 
what I introduced when I was inspired by psychological data about how humans learn. And that psychological data led to brain studies because I like to say brain evolution needs to achieve behavioral success. So without the brain mechanisms, you really can't explain psychological functions, including how we learn. And let me give you an example. My earliest work was about a topic we all know about. And we may think, oh, that's so boring. And that is, how do we learn and remember lists of items and events? So the list could be made up of words, could be made up of baseball scores or routes from your bedroom to the bathroom or from the, your home to school, whatever you tend to remember in a list. And of course, the simplest example may be the alphabet, the letters A, B, C up to X, Y, Z. And learning a list is important because it illustrates what's called the problem of serial order in behavior. And the great psychologist Carl Lashley already wrote in 1951 about this problem that, and why don't I quote him, quote, it's the most complex type of behavior I know, the logical and auditory arrangement of thought and action. And I found uh, properties of how we learn was very exciting. Uh, let me tell you why, even though you might think, oh, what a bore. But first, often we learn lists using what's called serial verbal learning. And here a list item is presented in a window to the learning person. And that person's task is to predict the next item before it appears in the window. And then when the next item appears, the task is to predict the next one before it appears and so on and so forth. And you practice the list over and over again. It's presented in the same order and at the same rate on each learning trial until you know the list. So in other words, it's an example of practice makes perfect. Now, the items within the list may be presented, let's say, every m seconds, where m may equal two seconds or four seconds. And then you rest between list presentations for n seconds where the rest interval could be four seconds or two minutes and four seconds. And the presentation rate is called the intra-trial interval. And that rest interval between list presentations is called the inter-trial interval. Remarkably, and this is what caught my attention, if you count how many errors are made at each list position until you've learned it, there are more errors in the middle of the list than at the beginning or the end of the list. So it's easier to learn the beginning and end than the middle. Uh, for example, you may make more errors when you try to predict that the letter P follows O in the alphabet, which is in the middle, than when B follows A or Z follows Y. And you know, in daily life, we experience the same thing. Let's say you're thinking about a relationship and you may vividly remember how you met and how you broke up, but the middle can be a model. That's actually something relevant here. Daniel Kahneman in his book, uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, he talks about the, the recency effect in, uh, in surgeries, like dental surgery, that if the last part of the procedure is less painful than the whole rest of the procedure was, your memory will be 
influenced by that last part. And if the last part is less painful, you will, you'll remember it as the whole thing as being less painful. There's, there's something about the last bit which colors everything that came before. Well, there is a recency effect. Even if all the items are matched in salience, but if you get relief at the end, then you get a boost uh, due to a cognitive emotional interaction, which is called a von Westhoff. Is this the effect. first thing that you worked on as a 17 year old? The first thing I worked on. I, I solved this problem when I was 17. That's why I'm mentioning it. And because it's, I want to indicate to you in the next thoughts how that launched my whole yeah, and if i could just say one more thing though before you do that so what, what we're talking about here is i guess called computational neuroscience i mean it requires a, a really good mathematical mind to model what's going on in this in this psychological experiment as and seeing how it might translate into a neural mechanism yes but you need more than mathematics i was blessed to be always good in math, but my real gift is experimental intuition. If you can't see into the heart of the data and its underlying meaning, then math won't help you with modeling. And you talked about that in that you came up with this kind of method, even as a 17-year-old, uh, doing thought experiments. I think many of us have heard of the thought experiments that Einstein did to come up with his, his theories. And you had a thought experiment about how the psychological data might be modeled, right? Let me just finish the example about the first, my first experience as a 17-year-old man, then I'll be happy to tell you about how thought experiments entered my world. So remember, I, I just said the middle of this is harder to learn. And why it's paradoxical is you might have thought that the list should get harder and harder to learn the further you get into the list. So there shouldn't have been a bow there should have been a steadily increasing curve of more and more errors because there should have been more response interference due to the presentation of more preceding items as you get deeper into the list. But that doesn't happen. And the fact that the middle is hardest to learn is called the classical serial position curve. And it was thought to be an intractable problem when I first studied it. And what's really interesting is, and this is really what turned me on the most, if you increase the amount of rest between successive list presentations, that can change the distribution of errors throughout the entire list. So the non-occurrence of a future item, that is to say a longer rest interval, influences the learning of all past items, and that implied in some sense, and this just blew my mind, that learning is backwards in time. And the whole question of what is time came up in our daily experience. And let me give you the simplest example of backwards in time learning. If you practice the list A, B, you also at least partially learn the list B, A. In other words, in reverse, in other words, reverse order. Yes. Right, even though he hadn't practiced it. But we all know that you can still learn the list A, B, C, so that the future association from B to C must have been stronger 
And the best association from B to A, otherwise you couldn't yeah, So if I could just th throw in something here. So what this implies is that our memory is not just a single point. It's, it's buffering a certain uh, time frame, you know, some, some seconds really, mostly. Right, that's what I'm leading up to. You anticipate my next thought. These properties show that to explain learning, you need a time scale that's finer and the time scale of observable behaviors like presenting the items in a list because the list items can occur at arbitrary times. They need to be able to represent that time. And such a fine time scale is often called real time. Differential equations are the traditional formalism in every science, physics, biology, chemistry, for describing things that occur in real time. So. Through studying list learning as a 17-year-old, I was led to discover the particular systems of differential equations whereby our brains learn about the world, in this case, just learning list. And these equations are still used by just about everybody who studies biological neural nets. But why do they look like neural nets? And that's because of backward learning. Because if a learned connection exists from A to B to learn the list AB, then one also exists from B to A to learn the list BA. So there's a network here going back and forth. And so there's a cell population that gets briefly activated when A occurs. Then a different cell population gets briefly activated when B occurs. And so when A, B is presented, learned connections get strengthened from cells A to cells B. And when B, A is presented, learned connections get strengthened from cells B to cells A. So the activations are called short-term memory or STM traces because they decay after a little while. And the learned connections are called adaptive weights or alternatively long-term memory or LTM traces cause these learned memories can last for a long time. And I derived all this in 1957 as a- That's amazing, thought. Stephen. You often will start in an associative net with a fully connected net. But that, what I hadn't done in 57, and which was a burning question, was how do we learn an internal representation of events like A and B and C. So they don't exist a priori. We don't get born knowing alphabets and Shakespeare. We have to learn these representations. And that is what later led me to introduce theories like adaptive resonance theory. How we learn categories to represent different knowledge that we acquire through learning about the world, and how do we remember those categories as we learn more and more stuff at a feverishly rapid rate. Anyone who's a kid is astonished by how much they learn in a given day, and what they're learning isn't being washed out. We'll get out. to that in a second. Could you give an example of one of your thought experiments that our listeners could appreciate and be able to sort of follow along and imagine making that thought experiment themselves? Well, let me talk about how one has led to a thought experiment and what a thought experiment is. To actually go through the thought experiment 
even though the steps are very simple in all of them, I think it, my book presents them in a non-technical way. But, but let me illustrate first the role of thought experiments in my work. And let me illustrate it with adaptive resonance theory or art, which I first began to publish about in 1976, so a long, long time ago. And let me remark right away that you don't think of a thought experiment unless you already pretty well understand the topic under investigation. Uh, it's only then that you can see what's really fundamental. So let me just say a little bit about art and then tell you some of the properties of thought experiment. So I think it's fair to say that art's now the most advanced cognitive and neural theory about how our brains learn to attend, recognize, and predict objects and events in a changing world. And I can say it with confidence for several reasons. First, all the foundational hypotheses of art have been supported by subsequent psychological and neurobiological experiments. And it's provided principled and unifying explanations of a lot of other experiments. But more importantly, I think, I was able to derive art in 1980 on a thought experiment. And the thought experiment asked how any system can autonomously, that is to say, by itself, learn to attend, classify, and predict objects and events in a changing world. And here you'd mentioned Einstein. You know, Einstein derived both special relativity and general relativity from thought experiments. And their importance is that a thought experiment is a story, and it's a story that works out logical implications of simple hypotheses. And the hypotheses of my thought experiment are facts that are familiar to all of us. And the reason they're familiar is because they represent ubiquitous environmental pressures on the evolution of our brains. And if you study the thought experiment in my book, the hypotheses don't include the words mind or brain, nor does the thought experiment. It's all about environmental pressures that we're all subjected to. So that means that the art model is design principles and mechanisms that I can derive from the thought experiment are a universal solution to this learning problem. And I've called the learning problem the stability plasticity dilemma. And it's a dilemma because it asks how any system can quickly learn without experiencing catastrophic together. So we were about to hear about a uh, thought experiment to explain some of these concepts, right? The main thing I wanted to say about, I'm not going to go through the thought experiment here. It would take more time okay. than we have. But I wanted to say the stability plasticity dilemma links learning or plasticity and the stability of your learned memories or stability. And for people who don't already know, catastrophic forgetting means that learned memories can be suddenly forgotten without warning during learning and recall. I want to emphasize this to contrast it 
with other models that are very much in the news these days. So, for example, backpropagation and deep learning, which many people hear about because they're both being very strongly marketed, they can both experience catastrophic forgetting. And because of that, they're unreliable. The whole memory can crash unpredictably. They're also untrustworthy because in a technical sense, they're not explainable. Even if they work in a given example, you can't explain why they work. And you can't safely use an unreliable and untrustworthy algorithm in any life or death prediction problem, including medical and financial predictions, because if God forbid uh, the prediction goes wrong and you ask the person who made it, why did you make it? And they say, I don't know. Uh, you'll be sued for everything you were. So let me just summarize this off by noting that in 1988, I published an off-sided article that listed 17 fundamental problems of backpropagation that are inherited by deep learning, including the fact that they're untrustworthy and unreliable. And even by 1988, adaptive resonance theory had already overcome all of them. So it's sad that people who promote deep learning never seem to mention adaptive learning. Yeah, so uh, I think this is really irrelevant, uh, as you mentioned, about what's in the news lately about ChatGPT and generative uh, AI, I think is what it's called recently. And I, I've done a little bit of reading. I'm, I'm not in, in this field, so forgive me if I'm a little bit off base, but I, I did do some reading about machine learning as it's done in those systems. And it, it sounds like it's it's a number of rounds of, of statistical correlations and that when a particular input leads to a little bit more to the correlation that you're looking for to the target, then you, you give it a, a stronger weighting. And if it doesn't, you give it a, a, a lower weighting. And you do some rounds of this, but the, it, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just the, the it's picking up on s some details that we don't really even understand what they are. And, and that's why uh, a machine learning algorithm that, let's say, detects stop signs can miss it if it's at just the wrong angle and just the wrong lighting. It's not picking up the gestalt somehow. It's picking up little elements. It's kind of like a, as if you had no recognition of faces. Uh, there's actually a, a term for that prosopnosia. Normally, there's a feeling of a, a gestalt that you'd recognize a face as a face. And people who don't have this, either because they've had a brain lesion or because they were born with, with uh, that deficit, they have to look at specific elements of the face, the eye, the eyebrow, the cheekbone, and hope to find something that's distinct enough so that they can rec recognize people. And the machine learning is doing this at a massive scale, but it doesn't really understand faces as such. Well, also the way they're learning is very different from the way our brains learn, for example, my colleagues and I some years ago studied how first we learn particular views of objects and we explained a lot of data about that and then we explained how these multiple views are combined into a representation that's invariant under the views and we know where that happens in the brain it happens in the posterior and anterior parts of the infratemporal cortex visual recognition. I mean, I was going to tell you quite a bit more about uh, how art learns, but maybe I should say a little about chat. Yeah, I think that's on people's minds, yeah. 
And just for our audience, uh, when you say ARD, you, that's an acronym for Adaptive Resonance Theory. Yes, yes. <laughs> In fact, years ago, someone was trying to, what is, what is it, when you get exclusive rights to use the word ARD, <laughs> and they came to us momentarily, which we thought was hilarious, given all of the experience in life that use ART. Anyway, ChatGPT, as many people know, has been fed immense databases of facts, and it has a probabilistic algorithm that tries to predict what comes next in its currently active factual context. So it can't do fast learning in novel situations like humans can and can't solve the stability-plasticity dilemma. The learning engine that it uses is, to my understanding, deep learning. So it can't rapidly learn a rare event. That's the basis of great discovery, such as being able to learn the first outbreak of a new disease or in making a scientific discovery. But most importantly, it doesn't know the real world world meaning of its predictions. And when it's being applied, they've shut off learning. So we can't incrementally learn about novel situations in the world. And most importantly to me, it doesn't know the real world meaning of its predictions. They're just strings of words. There's no meaning there. In fact, I just finished an article describing the real-time dynamics whereby children learn the perceptual and affective meanings of experiences from their teachers. And it builds on everything that I review in my magnum opus, Conscious Mind Resonance. So I don't know if, if what you're talking about relates at all to um, the computer program AlphaZero, which was used to first become the best chess playing machine and then uh, the best Go playing machine. And my understanding is that it was trained in like four hours by playing itself. And basically it created a, its own database at breakneck speed, you know, millions and millions of games. But there's no understanding actually of the principles of the game. It's all statistical. And that's why it's able to make moves that are totally surprising to grandmasters because it comes seems to come out of nowhere because it's based really on statistics rather than chess principles. And that when... Uh, AlphaZero was trained in chess, it had to be trained separately on Go. It, it couldn't really learn anything from the previous game the way a human might. And as you say, it, it could have led to catastrophic forgetting it. There's no way to sort of integrate those the, the databases of the two tasks. Well, also, when we look at this, at a spatially formatted thing, whether it's a chessboard or a face or a landscape, the way we understand it is very, very different from how any statistical algorithm would understand it. You know, that's why I spent decades of my life trying to understand how we consciously see the world. And we know a huge amount about that now, whether we're looking at shapes or textures or we're looking at the world through very different lighting conditions. For example, how do we discount the illuminant, how do you compensate the variable illumination as you move through the world? And if you couldn't do that, if you confused illumination with shape, 
then solid bodies would seem to undulate through time. So, you know, these basic principles that you can start at our retina in terms of discounting the illuminant are often not included in um, these various algorithms. Yeah, I, don't know, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but uh, learning how to draw or paint, you have to translate a three-dimensional world into two dimensions. And for some people, this is sort of intuitive, but, but there's a kind of mental leap that has to happen to be able to do that. And it's, the brain is doing that automatically. It's taking these two-dimensional retinas and it's turning it into three-dimensional space. One of the things that I, I published some papers about in 2000, well, it, it built up over many years, is how our brain, why it is that our, although our brains are designed to understand the world in three dimensions or four dimensions, if you include time, that automatically enables us to understand two-dimensional depictions, whether on a cave wall or a painting by Renoir or Matisse, as representations of the three-dimensional world. And one of the key issues that comes in there uh, is the issue of how you do figure ground separation. And this leads to other issues. For example, what are the fundamental units whereby we do see the world? And I and various colleagues spent a lot of years showing that the units are boundary grouping and the filling in of surface form. And, and we also showed, this was very exciting to me, that the rules for boundaries and surfaces are computationally complementary, which has a specific meaning. It's sort of like a yin and yang. What boundaries can do well, surfaces can conversely. And unless they interact appropriately, you couldn't see the world. And this is something that would be absolutely well, critical for, for instance, a self-driving car. If it can't do figure ground uh, separation, you're in real trouble. Well, in fact, one of the things that we demonstrated um, in a paper with, I've had over 100 students and postdocs, so I'm searching, I see his face now. We showed how our vision algorithms could, in real time, understand a scene, scenes of a car driving through streets and automatically provide information for navigation. How far are you from the heading direction? And how should you steer if you want it to go in the heading direction? Or how do you avoid an obstacle? So we've done a lot of work on that. Yes, Browning is his last name, understanding real-time navigation and so, steering. Well, Steve, I think this would be maybe a good time to bring up the concept of top-down, bottom-up processing, because that seems like a really key uh, feature of, of uh, adaptive resonance theory. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. First, I have to say a little about what is a resonance. So resonances, they're dynamic states that occur when you have excitatory feedback signals between two or more brain regions, bottom up, top down, and when they match well enough to cause the active cells to synchronize and sustain 
they're firing long enough to trigger learning. And that's why the theory is called adaptive resonance theory. It's as if the system has made a hypothesis and is testing the hypothesis with top-down matching signals. And if there's a good enough match, it closes the excitatory feedback loop and resonates long enough to start rapidly learning. And so, you know, that's a global context-sensitive decision. And what was wonderful to me was that I gradually realized that properties of the resonances embody parametric properties of the psychological data that the resonances were explaining about conscious psychological experiences. And so the kind of consciousness that I first discovered in art is called a feature category resonance because it shows how distributed features that could represent, let's say, a Matisse or a face are linked by bottom-up and top-down signals with a category that they learn to select. And when it resonates enough, it supports conscious recognition. So let's say your feature category resonance in your face, I would then know it was Stuart. I wouldn't see you. It mustn't confuse conscious recognition with conscious seeing. And vis-a-vis deep learning are uh, the feedback signals in art or learn top-down expectations that protect art against catastrophic forgetting. And that's how art solves the stability plasticity dilemma. And because deep learning is just a feed-forward adaptive filter, there is no top-down, and so it will experience catastrophic forgetting. So let me just throw in an, uh, an example here. When I was moving to Las Cruces from Boston, we decided to drive all that way. And when we're getting close to Albuquerque, I saw up ahead a stationary flock of birds. And so that's in my top-down expectation was these are birds. There were these black specks in the sky, but they weren't moving. And as we got closer, so wait a second, this doesn't match what I would expect of a flock of birds. It's The shape is too big. They're not moving. And as we got closer, I saw there was some color in them. And then I, I, my brain was going through a kind of a search process of what could this be. And as we got close enough, we realized it was the balloon fiesta. It was the Albuquerque balloon fiesta. And I saw that there were balloons. So, you know, the, that's when the, the resonance happened then. But before the resonance happened, there was this search process. And you can, I can almost feel my brain working to do that. No, you did have a resonance. But then as you got more data, it got mismatched and... In art, for example, there are complementary, I'm using this word complementary, most of our brain is designed in terms of pairs of complementary systems, which individually cannot solve a problem, but together can. So in the case of adaptive resonance, we've talked about how through bottom-up, top-down matching signals, if you get a good enough match, you can get a resonance, and then, for example, I can get conscious recognition of the face. But let's say I started resonating on what I thought was your face from a distance, and the resonance is going on, and as I get closer, I see, oh, that's not Stuart, that's just another guy with a gray beard. And that's going to cause a mismatch, which is going to activate an orienting or novelty-sensitive system which interacts with the attentional system where the learning goes. 
and drives a memory search or hypothesis testing to discover either do I know this other person with a gray beard and if I do, I'll discover it very quickly and resonate on that. And if I don't, the search automatically will grab a set of uncommitted felt in the category layer and start learning. Right, but, but much of this resonance process is unconscious, right? I mean, the, the search process. During search, it's unconscious. When the, when the resonance takes hold long enough, it can become I'd like to segue now to talk about consciousness, which I know is one of your biggest concerns and, and your theory speaks to it very much. Uh, in 1995, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers wrote a paper entitled Facing Up to the Problem of Consciousness, uh, which proposed a distinction between the so-called easy and hard problems of consciousness. The hard problem asks how the brain processes information and produces behavior, how the brain integrates sensory information and generates motor commands, how it creates cognitive processes such as memory and attention, among other neurological processes that correlate with conscious experiences. Whereas the hard problem of consciousness ponders why and how a physical brain gives rise to subjective experience at all. Is there even a way to know, for instance, if an artificial neural network has not only achieved general intelligence, but also the capacity to have subjective experience, as opposed to the simulation of subjectivity when viewed by humans? And so in, in, the, in philosophy, a system that's seems uh, to be conscious but is, has no experience would be considered a philosophical zombie. Does adaptive resonance theory address the hard problem of consciousness or only the so-called easy one? I would say yes, but I want to say what I mean by yes. So, for example, in my models, conscious states embody the parametric properties of the psychological experiences that they represent. They don't just correlate with conscious experience. They cause them and they embody them. And to get to really understanding what's behind the Chalmers critique, I think a key issue is why evolution was driven to discover consciousness. And I have proposed a computationally precise answer to the question I want to sketch for you. But before that, I want to emphasize I proposed how where in our brains and why, from a deep computational perspective, we can consciously see, hear, and feel and know things about our unique personal experiences. And critically, you don't become conscious just to passively contemplate the world. It's these conscious representations that enable us to plan and act to achieve value goals. And here I got to go right to the retina. You know, the retina is where light is registered in our eyes before light signals are bundled into the optic nerve to send those signals to the brain. And consequently, the retina has a huge blind spot where visual signals from all the photoreceptors are bundled together for form the optic nerve. And no light is registered the blind spot. And you might say, big deal. Well, it is literally a big deal because the blind spot is as big as the fovea. And the fovea is part of the retina where we see things with high visual acuity. And it's because of that that we move our eyes several times a second with what's called saccadic eye movements. 
whose whole purpose is to point the fovea at objects that we really want to see. Otherwise, we can't see them clearly. So without further processing to get rid of that blind spot, we couldn't look at or reach for objects that happen to occur where the blind spot is, and that could lead to disaster. So why aren't we aware of the missing visual signals due to the blind spot? Or to put it more positively, how do we complete the retinal representation so that we can look at and reach for objects in these positions? One factor is our eyes rapidly jiggle in their orbits to generate transient visual signals from the outside world. So when we're looking at a stationary scene, if the eyes don't jiggle a little relative to the scene, it would rapidly fade. It would be, we'd get a gonsville, we'd be blind. But because of the transients, they refresh the visual signals. But because the blind spot is stabilized on the retina, it doesn't generate transients, so it's going to fade. So we still have an incomplete retinal image with a hole in it. And how do we complete over that hole? And it's here that we need multiple stages of boundary completion to complete object boundaries over the hole and surface filling in to fill in surface color and brightness where those experiences were occluded. And those multiple stages of boundary and surface processing, I call a hierarchical resolution of uncertainty. And let me take a minute or two to explain how that forced evolution, I believe, to achieve conscious seeing, which isn't the same thing as conscious recognition. And the, the, the question, the design question is very simple. How does the brain know at what processing stage the cortical representation is complete enough to control looking and reaching? And the claim is that a resonance will occur with a completed surface representation and the next processing stage. And that's going to light up that surface representation and render it consciously visible. And we're going to use that consciously seen surface representation to look and reach for objects in the world. And that's a different resonance. I call it a surface shroud resonance because the shroud is the spatial attention that covers the surface and they resonate to make the thing visible. And I predict it occurs between visual cortical area V4 and the posterior parietal cortex where all the stages of retinolateral geniculate V1, V2 are trying in multiple stages to give you a complete enough surface representation in V4. And then due to the resonance with posterior parietal cortex, that surface representation is what becomes consciously visible. We use that to look and reach. Not the earlier ones with incomplete information could get us into big trouble. Uh, Steve, I have a question. This kind of resonance between complementary processes, also what's going on with the right brain versus the left brain? Teach a category resonance and the surface shroud resonance. While they're resonating, they're not complementary. 
you know, they're giving you a consistent representation. What's complementary, for example, in the future category resonance, that goes on in our learning or attentional system. And when there's a mismatch, that activates a complementary orienting system that drives the search for hypothesis testing for a better answer. The surface shroud resonance, V4 is part of the visual cortex. That's the ventral or what cortical processing stream where we see and recognize objects. But it happens going to posterior parietal cortex, which is in the where or dorsal cortical stream, which is the spatial representation and action. And that surface shroud resonance activates a shroud in posterior parietal cortex, which not only top down gives you spatial attention for the resonance, but when it's activated, it gives you bottom up signals that guide us to where we have to All right, so let me ask in a slightly different way. It's, so it seems like there are these kind of complementary processes going on within each hemisphere, but also between? Well, the what and the where streams do have complementary processing. For example, the what stream, where, for example, adaptive resonance theory is learning categories, you have excitatory matching, you know, the top-down expectation is trying to match stuff it expects, and match-based learning. And that's where you solve the stability plasticity dilemma. And because of that, in the what stream, you can keep learning more and more facts about the world. And we become experts about the world using the fact that the Watt stream doesn't experience catastrophic forgetting. So we can learn throughout life and build up what we like to call a sense right, of Right, but self. the wear stream, would you don't need to keep a hold of that. Exactly. That's what I'm building up to in the wear stream, which is devoted to spatial attention and action, we want forgetting to occur, as you just noticed, because God forbid the spatial maps and motor parameters that I use to control my little baby body persisted into adulthood. I have to continually adjust those maps and gains to adjust to my growing body. Moreover, if I work out at the gym and get big bulging muscles, I have to adjust to that. If God forbid I have an accident and I can't use my arm as well anymore, I have to adjust for that. So in the wear stream, you have inhibitory matching and mismatch-based learning, which does not solve the stability plasticity problem. We can forget, which is good, to keep our present bodies controlled by appropriate spatial maps and motor parameters. Remember, though, that that propagation and deep learning use mismatch learning, which is why they experience catastrophic forgetting. Forgetting in the where stream is good. In the what stream, it's a disaster. And that disaster Deep learning and back propagation. Yes, I wonder if in, in our remaining several minutes, if we could talk about how your theory is able to combine the cognitive and emotional systems in the brain. Yes, I was talking about a thought experiment 
for cognition, which was the one that I used to derive adaptive resonance theory. But adaptive resonance theory is a broader theory than that because we not only have facts in the world, we have feelings about the world. And those feelings aren't just touchy-feely things. They're the things that support the values that we use to guide our knowledge about the world to achieve the goals that we really need to achieve. And so there are cognitive emotional resonances that link thinking and feeling so that we can realize those value goals. And so I also used a thought experiment, again, after explaining a ton of data about it, to derive uh, my model of cognitive emotional processing. And I call it the COG-M, capital C-O-G, capital E, capital M model, which stands for cognitive emotional motor model, because the point is for the values we have to guide the thoughts we have to actions, motor, to realize value goals. Both are and cogn we derive from thought experiments that don't say anything about mind or brain. They are both universal solutions of the kinds of problems they solve, which is why their mechanisms have been conserved through so many species uh, for so many eons. And it's for that reason that I believe they give us a foundation for a really revolutionary computational paradigm, not that problem deep learning, which are old hat, they're just steepest descent, but really for the paradigm of autonomous adaptive intelligence, which my work and that of my colleagues, we've laid that foundation for 50 years. And I'm a little sad that more people in AI haven't picked up on it, although it is used in many large scale. Yeah, yeah, I'd actually like to hear about that. Which applications uh, use adaptive resonance theory that the general public w would be aware of? Not, not that they're necessarily aware of adaptive resonance theory, but they're aware of the applications. Well, anyone who's flown in a Boeing 777, art was used in the CAD system to design it. So, for example, my book gives a URL. First, my book lists maybe 40 large-scale applications where art and other algorithms of ours have been used. For example, it's not only art that's used. You know, my work on vision has been used, for example, for years. Lincoln Laboratory, which is one of the national laboratories of the United States for high tech, was using our vision algorithms for uh, LADAR, night vision, the kind of what you use from satellites to see. So, so for self-driving cars, for instance, it'll be used for that? It certainly could be. I have no idea if it has been. I do know many years ago, I was giving a lecture and a guy came up to me after and he said, he was from the National Security Agency. He said to me, just so you know, art is protecting the nation. And I give you that anecdote because 
intellectual property motivates companies not to tell you what algorithms they're using. If people are bragging about their algorithm, then they haven't done something that has economic value to a company. And our stuff has been used by many companies over the years. So I have a list in my book of a lot of large-scale applications that our work has done. And the reason it has been is because it's not brittle, it's not unreliable, it's robust, and very often it's self-organizing. What do you mean by self-organizing? And how is that different from, from, the other, from the alternative? One example of self-organizing is if you take an odd algorithm and expose it to world events, it will automatically learn categories to represent them. So that's called unsupervised learning. So it'll come up with its own categories, in other words? Okay. Yes. Automatic unsupervised learning. Now, sometimes you want learning to be unsupervised, sometimes And supervised means that you're given all the, the labeling in advance, right? Supervised, which is what deep learning must do, you're always given the answer. You can't discover something on your own. That's not true of art. But let's say you want to have a predictive algorithm that can work in arbitrary combinations of unsupervised learning, just learning on its own, and supervised learning. And sometimes you need supervised learning. For example, if you're learning the alphabet and you're looking at capital printed letters, compare the letters E and F. Well, if you shorten the bottom horizontal edge on E, there's going to be a category boundary where you can't decide if it's E or F. So being able to make that kind of distinction often needs a teacher. You know, if Johnny says, oh, that's an F. No, that's an E. The teacher said, no, Johnny, that's an F. And so to be able to do supervised learning and unsupervised learning, you'll have two uh, self-organizing art systems. And the categories, and let's say the perceptual system, let's say I'm learning to visually recognize fonts of letters. And now I want to name them. So I have multiple letter fonts for the letter A. I want to be able to predict using language they're all the letter A. I'll have visual categorizer and auditory categorizer learning names. And then I'll have an associative map from one just the other. very last question. Do you anticipate that sometime in the future, maybe the far future, there'll be forms of artificial intelligence that will be artificial life forms, artificial human? Well, I've laid a firm computational foundation for autonomous adaptive intelligence, including adaptive mobile robots. In fact, our work's been used by Lincoln Lab to design robots, among other places. And this has implications even for machine consciousness. Yeah, so, yeah. I'll take that as a yes. Anyway, Steve Grossberg, it's been really delight to have you on Delving In, a principal founder in the fields of computational neuroscience, connectivist cognitive science, and artificial neural network research for 66 years. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.